0: what is the gospel? Would anybody, I'd actually like three brave volunteers. This is what we live and die for, church, so no pressure. And you're in good company here. All right, Karen, need two more on deck. What's the gospel? Ten words or less. The gospel is uh, we were dead in our sin, and Jesus died for that sin, and as we accept him, we're alive in him. Awesome, thank you. Can anybody try and get it down to 20? (laughs) (laughs) Topper? Shave some off? Carol? All right, Carol, what's the gospel? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Mm. Good. One more? Yeah, you, right here. Mom is hanging her head. Come on, Mom. I love God. I love God. Okay. So Sunday school teachers, this morning, uh, your assignment before you start your lesson um, and talking about Nehemiah or Ezra or whoever, awesome, important character we're talking about, uh, let's, let's go right to the heart of things and uh, read Mark 1, 14 and 15 with your kids. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. If not, it's on the screen. Um, we're going to listen to Jesus and let him give us his answer Y'all's answers were great, but Jesus is Jesus, so um, we'll let him weigh into. This is not our passage for this morning, but uh, you're going to see momentarily how it's related and why it's so important. So, uh, here's what Mark one says. This is Jesus answering this question. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, "The time is fulfilled; the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." Jesus articulates the gospel precisely like this. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, it took long enough to get three of y'all to volunteer to share the gospel. If I asked you to explain to me what the kingdom of God was, I won't even do it. I, I expect that it would take even longer, we'd have even fewer volunteers, and here's why. Because I think the kingdom of God is one of the most underappreciated misunderstood, but absolutely, what I want to show you this morning, paramount concepts in all of Scripture. And my hope for us this morning, my promise to you, if you can hang with me, is that when you walk out, very simply, um, every single one of you, I hope, will be able to not only answer that question, what is the kingdom of God, uh, but you'll also be able to answer the question, what does it mean to pray that God's kingdom would come, is that the kingdom was the most important concept in the world to Jesus. Um, he mentions it some 121 times in the four Gospels. Uh, that's more than once per chapter. Uh, it's more than love and money and sex and idolatry and abortion and homosexuality and anything else you could lump together combined. And it's, there's, there's no other way to put it. It's just the most important thing to Jesus. Gordon Fee, a New Testament expert, sums it up this way pretty bluntly, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. You are zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. I'm sorry to say it that strongly, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without the kingdom of God, and therefore we have literally done Jesus in. Jesus himself tells us in Luke 4 that he was sent for this very purpose. I came to preach the kingdom of God, the good news. This is important stuff. Secondly, though, even if you don't pay attention for Jesus' own sake, um, I hope that you'll stick with me this morning, at least for your own sake, because we hear in Romans 1, 16, Paul says, For I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation uh, to everyone who believes. This is the good news of the kingdom that we're going to be unpacking all morning this morning, is the very power of salvation for you and me and everyone who would believe. Without understanding the gospel of the kingdom according to scripture you're missing the the sole ingredient that you must have in order to be saved well gospel plus faith Uh, so let's turn our attention now to uh, our passage at hand for this morning Matthew 6 verse 10 would you stand with me as you're able your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven let's pray Uh, heavenly father we pray now that you would open your word to us this morning, God, that you would show us the good news of your kingdom, that you would teach us what it means to ask you to manifest it here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, would my words be few and yours be many. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to give you a quick working definition of the kingdom before we dive in. So, Jesus prays, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, That's more than just a clever rhyme, kingdom come, will be done. That is uh, called Semitic parallelism. It's the second thing, uh, it's where the second thing in the list uh, qualifies and defines the first thing. What is God's kingdom? It is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So God's kingdom is just the place where God's will is done. Wherever we find God's will being done, that's God's kingdom. So if we get the kingdom, then we get this whole verse. Uh, That's that's true always in heaven and sometimes on earth. Hence, our prayer that it becomes more and more true here on earth. But God's kingdom, is it actually a place? Does it make sense to talk about it? as a place. Some say no. They understand the kingdom as meaning rule rather than realm. It points us to God doing something as actively ruling rather than as an area or a group of people over whom he is sovereign. The kingdom is something that happens rather than something that exists. Then others are going to say yes, God's kingdom is a place. It's not a geographical place, of course, but it's a spiritual place. It's a spiritual realm, right? This, namely, the spiritual realm having God as, as its head. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So, which is it? Well, there are at least a few who recognize that maybe we don't have to choose. Right? It's not an either-or um, Ben Witherington puts it this way, I would suggest that we use dominion instead of kingdom since it can more easily refer to an activity. God exercises or has dominion over us, and we are in turn ruled by God, or a place. God's dominion is where the divine rule is manifest. So maybe it's both. This morning, I'm actually going to go beyond that. I'm going to suggest to you that um, we, we have to understand God's kingdom in three different senses. All right. So if you have a pen, if you haven't written anything yet, this is, your, this is your definition, overarching definition. We're going to work through of Kingdom of God. Number one, it's it's his reign in us. Looked at that a little already. Number two, it's his realm above us. And number three, it's his return to us. It's something that a, a a lot of a lot of uh, biblical interpreters see that going on his his return to us. They see the eschatological thing going on in this passage but they don't specifically identify it with the kingdom itself. We're going to see all three of those categories show up, both in the Old Testament and then again with Jesus in the New Testament when he explains the kingdom. And after we spend most of the morning studying this idea of the kingdom out, we're just going to study and and seek to understand what Jesus means when when he uses that word that's so important, the gospel kingdom. Uh, Then we will end with some quick application as we seek to answer what it means for us personally and practically to pray that God's kingdom would come. All right, so let's start in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, there was one kingdom and one king, God. I've got some visuals to help us as we walk through this. You can laugh all you want. I did not draw these. Um, I just stole these from someone else. If I'd drawn them, they'd be even worse. The first one here is easy enough, though. Boom, there you go. One king, one God. Pretty easy. In the beginning, God. Now, sometime in ancient history, between Genesis 1-1 and the end of Genesis 1, that chapter, a second kingdom is born. Isaiah 14, 12-15, we hear this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Isaiah here tells us about the fall before Genesis 3, the pre-fall fall. When this day star, aka in Greek, Lucifer, literally, Satan, was, who was created, of course, good by God, author of all things good, yet he rebels in his pride and is booted from heaven. And so Jesus confirms this in Luke 10. He says, and I saw him, Satan, falling like lightning from heaven. And if we can just fast forward real quick for a minute while we're off topic, it's important here to note Jesus also infir- affirms that the kingdom of Satan is still alive and well in Jesus' day also. Matthew 12. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Note, Satan has a kingdom. Luke 4. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus does not then reply, wait a minute, those aren't yours to give. Those kingdoms don't belong to you. Why not? Because not only does Satan have a kingdom, we're going to discover that it's here on earth too. Satan's kingdom has come on earth as it is in hell. Satan is called 2 Corinthians 4, the god of this world, Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. John 12, the ruler of this world. And so it's also possible we hear in John 8 for us humans to belong to his kingdom as Jesus criticizes the Pharisees. But let's don't get too far ahead of ourselves. Back in Genesis 1, we've got two kingdoms now. And before we even get to Genesis 2, we hear of God creating a third kingdom. Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the earth, our kingdom. Right? Now we've got a little bit more complex picture. God gives us dominion, reign over this kingdom, and it all goes pretty well for a whole chapter. And then... The one rule that God gave Adam and Eve for their own good, if they want their kingdom to remain under the good, perfect domain of God's kingdom, they break the rule. Why? Because of the influence of that kingdom beneath, that second kingdom, Genesis 3. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. So she took of its fruit and ate. And so the man and woman invite Satan in to be their king instead of God. As Jesus tells us later, you can't serve two masters, so God closes the door to his kingdom behind them. Genesis 3.23, therefore the Lord God sent them out of the garden. And it stays closed. God's kingdom stays closed off for a few millennia, thousands of years after that. Now, this is as good a time as any to pause and point out That just because God's not reigning as king in the hearts and lives and decisions of people, that does not mean that God has lost his realm. Remember, there's this two senses in which we use the word kingdom. His reign in and his realm over. And while we can invite God to leave the throne of our hearts, God never steps off the throne of the universe. So we hear in the Psalms that even during these millennia of separation between God's kingdom and our kingdom on earth, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So in his sovereignty from heaven over all the affairs of earth and in his mercy and his goodness, God eventually chooses a guy named Abram through whom he promises to one day restore his kingdom reign in the lives of a new people. Genesis 12. And specifically, God tells Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in this somewhat bizarre prophecy in Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so we, we get the first rumblings of God's plan to bless the world through Abraham, and that somehow that's going to entail God sharing his rule, his scepter, with a king in the line of Judah to whom every knee will one day bow. But in the meantime, God's promised people here, the Israelites, they get themselves stuck in a foreign land. So we hear in Exodus 1 and 2 about Egypt living under the rule of an evil king an emissary of Satan's kingdom even, the Bible describes him as. As, And yet God hears the cries of his people in their enslavement, and in his sovereignty he uses even this evil king for his own purposes. He hardens Pharaoh's heart and uses him to free his own people from bondage, and upon redeeming them, God renews his covenant promise to his people, but this time, for the first time, God actually refers to them as his kingdom people. It's the first time we get that language in Exodus 19. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And for the first time, God refers to himself as their king. Deuteronomy 33, thus the Lord became king in Jerusalem. And for the first time, God details out for them what kingdom living looks like under his benevolent kingly rule. You shall have no other gods before me. But here's the problem with all of that. Their citizenship in this kingdom is conditional. Here's the full quote from Exodus 19. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, and then you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That if then proves Especially problematic because before Moses can even get down off the mountain to deliver the terms of the kingdom covenant to the people, they've already violated all three of his top three commandments. But instead of slamming the door to his kingdom shut once and for all, for good, like the Israelites deserve, this time God in his mercy doubles down. He proves that his faithfulness will be bigger than Israel's faithlessness. And he guides them and he even blesses them on their way through the wilderness as they journey towards the land that he has promised and prepared for them. God leads them into Canaan. And for the first time, God's kingdom people have a kingdom home, a realm of their own with God himself to rule over them as king. But once again, the one rule that God gives them in this new kingdom home To purge the evil from among them, judges one, they disregard and within a single generation this cancerous evil that they allow to remain has spread and they're already reaping the consequences. Gradually over time, with each passing generation, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and God's people stray farther and farther and farther and follow these other gods, ignoring God's kingly divine reign and his kingdom among them unravels into anarchy. That's what we hear in Judges 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And rather than repent and turn back to God, their good king, the people eventually take matters into their own hands, and they decide that the problem is that they don't have a human king like all the other nations, a flesh and blood king that they can see and hear and touch and feel. So they impeach God, and they hire a new king. And once again, Rather than simply leave them to their own devices, let them suffer the consequences of life without God. In his mercy, God redeems their rejection and makes a way for them to still live under his kingdom rule. If both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. In fact, God is so sovereign and so merciful that he actually predicted their faithlessness and his, the rejection of his kingship 500 years prior when he delivered the law, he outlined the stipulations of this plan B for the kingdom that they're now choosing. In Deuteronomy 17, when you come to the land that the Lord God is giving you, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are around me, and then he, tell, he tells them, basically, their king has to follow his king. It will go well if their king will follow God's king, kingdom and kingship. He must submit to Yahweh's rule. And we learn this really important principle that is true if you know anything about just if you've ever been in a job or or an organization at any level, as the king goes, so goes the people, right? As the leader goes, so goes the people. If the king will submit to God's rule, so will the people. And so for a while, things actually work out okay because God, again in his mercy, anoints a good king to rule over them. God raised up David to be their king, of whom he said, I have found in David a man after my own heart who will do my will. And then kings like David, who remind the people of God's kingship and reign over them, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And so God renews the, with David his prophetic promise about this kingly line of Judah. Second Samuel 7, I will raise up for your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But this is a a weird promise that God makes because while David's offspring Solomon does build the temple prophesied there, his kingdom does not last forever. In fact, we hear in 1 Kings 11 that Solomon's drifting back away from God ultimately results in his kingdom being taken from him and torn in two upon his death. And so does God... Did God renege on his promise? Or is there another future king that they're still waiting for? And if so, when? Right. He's certainly not to be found in the rest of the Old Testament. After Solomon, things get pretty much worse as far as the kings go. It kind of pinball back and forth between some good, some bad kings. For every Jehoshaphat or Hezekiah who recognized God's sovereign kingly rule, There's an Ahaz or a Manasseh who let just a little bit of power that God does grant them go to their heads, and they turn the people away from God. But all the while, remember, God's realm, God is on his throne in heaven. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns and he is exalted over all the peoples. And all the while, God continues to reach out and call back his people. Now, through the prophets, the prophets remind the people of God's kingship, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. The prophets also remind them that if they don't uphold their end of the covenant to act like his kingdom people and to honor God as king in their lives, there will be consequences. Ezra 5, because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. But even in the midst of exile... We see God's redeeming hand at work, using his people as a witness and a blessing to these foreign ruling nations. So it's the prophets who have the final word in the Old Testament, lamenting the people's rejection of God's kingship, but also at the same time looking forward to another day, a new day. A day that they refer to as the day of the Lord when he will return for his people and we're introduced to that third understanding, that third way of appreciating this this notion of God's kingdom. Not just his reign in, not just his realm over, but his return to. God will return to his people one day as their king to rule forever. On that day, the prophets announce... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. The prophets foretell that on that day, Isaiah 2, God shall judge between the nations, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. For there will be a new king over them now, the one prophesied of long ago, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty and the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And in contrast to the kings and powers of this world, his reign Will be characterized by peace. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. They're all singing kumbaya. All the animals in God's in God's kingdom, back in the garden again. And his return will be characterized by abundant provision and health and joy. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, we'll all be drinking Chick-fil-A milkshakes for all eternity. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. There will be freedom for the oppressed. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he. I will set your prisoners free. But the day of the Lord will also be categorized and characterized by justice and overdue judgment as well. Isaiah 26, for behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And through all of this, ultimately, what God is doing is he's redeeming and renewing all of creation back to himself. Isaiah 65, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. You thought that was just in Revelation. It's Isaiah. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. No more shall be heard. In it, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. The very last chapter we hear in the whole Old Testament is God promising to send a prophet, a new Elijah, to announce the coming of this reinaugurated kingdom. And some 400 years later, in the very opening chapters of the New Testament, Matthew 3, we hear, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea we hear about this prophet, and to be sure, anticipation of and the yearning for God's long-awaited kingdom and returned rule. It was at an all-time high. We hear in Luke 2 and Mark 15 and John 6 of Simeon, Joseph of Arimathea, whole crowds of Jews who are coming to Jesus, trying to force him to be their king, all because they're so anxiously awaiting God's return after centuries of exile and subjugation being ruled over both home and abroad the now unrecognizable kingdom of israel is barely surviving under roman rule could jesus be god's messiah their long-awaited holy anointed one messiah sent to set them free indeed that's exactly how the gospels describe him Luke 1, Matthew 2, John 1, we hear early in Jesus' story that he is, in fact, the long-awaited king of Israel. Kind of. He's kind of the king that they've been waiting for. He is the son of the Most High, the eternal king, the savior of Israel, but not from Roman rule. Not the king that they've been asking for. He's got a different kind of salvation and kingdom in mind, and he makes that very clear because he does things like praise the faith of Roman soldiers and hang out with Roman sympathetic tax collectors and tell people to pay their taxes. He tells them to go the extra mile when they're conscripted to carry a Roman soldier's bags. It's a common practice back then. And above all, he commands his followers to love and pray for their enemies, the Romans. But more shocking than who Jesus came to overthrow, not the Romans, is how he came to do it. Whereas other rulers use their authority to lord over, and whereas that's what the Jews undoubtedly have expected of this king, right? A king like David who's gonna come in busting down the doors. Jesus is gonna use his rule His authority to serve under, even to die for. The powers of this world don't even have a category for understanding that. You you get this interaction with Pilate where Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world and it just blows Pilate's mind. They don't have a category for understanding it. Jesus is even his own people who ushered him into Jerusalem on Sunday as their king, Hosanna, with the palm branches, now cry out crucify him on Friday. And in a scene of twisted irony, the king of the universe is stripped and beaten and mocked, scorned, crowned with thorns, and murdered. Why? The charge that they bring against them is the very thing that they thought they'd wanted all along. The king of Israel. Is the king. He came to rule. And our sin hates being ruled over. So if Jesus is king, what exactly is this kingdom that he comes announcing and initiating? Well, for starters, as we already looked at in the Old Testament, the kingdom is God's resumed reign amongst his new kingdom people once again. Remember, Jesus said... Mark 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is geken is the Greek word, it's at hand, it's, it's come near, it's right under your nose. It's me, Jesus, right, that's, what, that's like what he's tipping them off to. You look at me and you're seeing the kingdom of God in flesh and bones. Colossians 1, 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Why? because Jesus alone perfectly submitted to God's will in every way and fully embodied God's rule and his power. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power, and Jesus not only goes through the towns proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching in their synagogues, he's healing, he's exercising demons, he's casting out spirits, he lived the kingdom. He put God's reigning power on display on every page of the Gospels as he claims his miracles as proof that God's kingdom has come. Matthew 12. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When the new Elijah, John the Baptist, asked for confirmation from Jesus that he is, in fact, the long-awaited king, Jesus, in effect, says the proof is in the pudding. It just... Look at what I'm doing. I'm the king over all creation. In the Old Testament, God ruled over the seas. In the New Testament, Jesus does too. He calms storms. But the kingdom isn't just Jesus' reign among us. And this is the really crazy part. It's his reign in us. That's the that's preposition we used. It's Jesus' reign in us. And in this shocking turn of events, Jesus actually shares his kingdom authority and power with his disciples and his followers. He tells them, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they preach like he did, but they also live it out in power heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Now you, therefore, go and he gives them his authority. He sends them out. The glory you've given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. Today, Jesus sends us out in the power of his authority. That's us. His kingdom people, right? The the kingdom spark in us that's now supposed to ripple and spread throughout the kingdom uh, of the third kingdom, the kingdom of our world, our domain. Today, he sends us out in that, and, and he delights to send us in that power. He says, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But, and this is important, this is where we start to get to, okay, what is, what is required of me in all of this? this is, that's great. I mean, if it's all true, that's great news. What does it have to do with me? What does it require of me? Why am I here? Why am I still listening? Because Jesus has conditions. Is that, I mean, is anybody a little worried about what I'm going to say next? Because usually we hear no strings attached with Jesus, right? Like cheap, cheap, free grace. Jesus has conditions. It's not the 613 commandments of the Old Testament law. But there are two things that he says. There are prerequisites for entry into his kingdom. Matthew 19, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 9, another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You must receive the kingdom humbly, and you must be willing to give up everything else in your life for it. The problem with adults is that we don't know how to accept gifts. We like to earn, like to pay back. Jesus says, we've got to like, take a field trip down to the other wing of the church on Sunday mornings and learn from the kids because they have no problems taking gifts right receiving gifts if you can't receive grace as a gift in the way that a a child does with that kind of excitement under the Christmas tree right then you can't have it trying to earn it pay it back don't bother you can't have it and he says if it's not everything to you then it's nothing Anyone who looks back, puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is not fit for the kingdom. It's not everything, it's nothing to you. So Jesus introduces the kingdom as God's reign in us, but he also points to this idea that it's it's a realm over us still. This morning's very prayer from Jesus assumes that God's kingdom is in some sense above us in heaven and, and needs to be brought here to earth. Jesus refers in Matthew 5 to heaven as God's throne the seat of his kingdom he discusses the the kingdom in Luke 23 as a realm into which he'll be entering shortly after his crucifixion remember the thief says remember me when you enter your kingdom there's this narrow door to the kingdom Jesus says you've got to walk through it's narrow it's hard, it's really hard if you're rich it's a whole other story Fortunately for us, elsewhere, Jesus identifies what the narrow door is. John 10, 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. It's him. And he warns us that this will offend our religious adult, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps type of sensibilities, Protestant work ethic. It offends us. But he says, all right, the alternative is you can be perfect. Matthew 5.20. If if your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, i.e. perfection, you can get into the kingdom of God. You're going to need a perfect Savior otherwise who's willing to lay down his life, trade his righteousness for your unrighteousness, to credit his blamelessness to you. And that's called grace. It's a gift. It's an undeserved gift. Gift requires humility to receive it. That's why Jesus says the least of these have a much easier time entering God's kingdom, his realm, than the rest of us because they're already humble. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the, the, the earth, all of that. Finally, like the Old Testament before him, Jesus. Thirdly, envisions the kingdom of God, not just as God's reign in him, and not just as God's realm over them, but as God's return to them as well. Perhaps Jesus' most instructive metaphor for the kingdom is found in Matthew 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants. He uses the analogy of a little leaven. Leaven's the whole flour dough. Is the kingdom here or there? Is it already? Is it not yet? Jesus' answer is yes. You've got mustard, kind of, right? You, you plant a mustard seed, you've got mustard. You've got the start of mustard. It's, it's in process. Compared to the plant you're going to have, you know, it's, this pales in comparison to what you're going to get. Another parable Jesus could have told us is that a pregnancy, right? I asked Rebecca if I could use her as an example, call her out in the middle of the sermon. If you all don't know, Rebecca's pregnant, yay. Um, Rebecca, when someone asks you how many kids you have, what's your answer currently? Two, three, two and a half, two with one on the way, Right? We might say that compared to, to, to what that answer is going to look like, four or five months from now, you know, in the in the delivery room um, when this little one shows up, right, it, it's going to blow what she currently would answer out of the water, right. Likewise, Jesus prophesies that even though He's initiated the kingdom of God in our midst, the fullness of its revelation is still yet to come. Jesus Himself will return like a thief in the night. In a a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, like lightning flashes, that's how he's going to come back. So he exhorts us, be ready. Be ready for his second coming when he will judge the world in the way that the prophets foretold. When he will gather his own on that day into God's eternal kingdom at last. As the earth finally feels the weight of, of the kingdom of God in a fundamentally new, final, full way. God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven in in an ultimate kind of way. So friends, that's the gospel. That's weighty. That's a lot to wade through. We We can condense it and we can talk about it in terms of Strictly Jesus' lordship and, and, and what it means to call him savior and, and king. But that's the context. And anytime someone shares their testimony in the book of Acts and scripture, we always see them pointing back to scripture. Right? They, don't, they don't usually go straight to Jesus. It's they, they go back, they start with the law and the prophets and then they unfold this, they unpack it. And My fear is, if we, if we are guilty today of over-personalizing the gospel, right? I, I've heard evangelists sometimes encourage us to, to personalize the gospel, to substitute your name in to, to John 3.16. You've heard that before. For God so loved Trey that he, he gave his only son, that if Trey would believe in him, right? and, and it's not that that's not true, it's just so small it's so small. We, we need a kingdom-sized vision. God's kingdom gospel is so much grander than what we sometimes boil it down to. And that's not to say that we don't ultimately all have to come to that, that faith conviction for, for ourselves personally. That's just to say, if we do over-personalize it, we can run the serious risk of forgetting that there's a whole kingdom of people out there, right outside your front door, maybe inside your front door, maybe in the mirror, a kingdom of people who are broken and lost and estranged and in need of God's reign in their rule, in their life. Maybe that is, maybe that is the mirror. Maybe, maybe that's you this morning. And, and if it is, and, and if you're here and you are tired of trying to rule on your own, um, I would encourage you, we would love to, myself, our elders, uh, we would love to talk with you after the service. We'd love to pray with you after the service and and, and help unpack this gospel even more for you and what it means for you. The kingdom of God could come on earth as it is in heaven in, in someone's life this morning. That, that is God's hope every time we open his word. I mean, Every time we preach his word, that is, that is the goal that God has in mind. Is that his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. And if God's kingdom is God's will being done, then here's what Jesus says about what it means to obey God's will. Not 613 commandments, not the top 10 list, not try and be a good person. It's John 640. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Just believe. Believe. Do it today. Don't wait. For those of us this morning who have believed, first of all, as we start to wrap up here, I want, I want to remind you that your belief is, first of all, the most important thing. Your salvation is secure on the basis of his grace through your faith alone. The seed has been planted There's there's mustard there in your heart. Praise God, and he will raise you up on the last day. But in the meantime, what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? I'll give you three closing takeaways here that correspond to our three uh, understandings of God's kingdom. First of all, to pray God's kingdom come personally and practically in your own life is to pray that God would reign in you more and more each day, that he would grow your mustard seed up into a full-fledged plant. That his words of, on Jesus' lips in Luke 17, 21 would become more and more true in your own heart. Jesus said, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. For behold, the kingdom of God is entos humon. The Greek is literally in you. The kingdom of God is in you. Insofar as God's will is done, when we submit To Christ's Lordship, and we walk according to His will, His kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven in the hearts and lives of God's kingdom people. Paul says it this way in 1st. Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification. You're growing in, sanctification, in Christ-likeness as you surrender and walk in obedience to God's rule over your life, watering the seeds of faith each day, marinating in his words, soaking up his presence in prayer, feasting on the fruit of the Spirit, and avoiding their opposites, the works of the flesh. Paul says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore, 1 Thessalonians 2, walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. I cannot pray for God's kingdom to come if I have no intention of letting it start with me. If if my heart is not open to God's kingdom rule right there for starters, it makes no sense for me to pray God's kingdom come in some abstract, you know, world-changing kind of way. It starts with us. This isn't just some abstract theological concept anymore. It's the present active dynamic reign of the God of the universe in my life personally through the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit reforming me little by little, sanctifying me more into the image of God I was created in the first place to be. That's, that's God's kingdom come. Secondly, To pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven is to pray that Jesus' realm over us would invade our world more and more and that over time, heaven would become increasingly indistinguishable from earth. To pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven is to pray that kingdom of hell stuff like what happened in Charlottesville yesterday doesn't happen anymore. That's what it means to pray God's kingdom would come. But here's the thing, God's already told us that his plan of action for making sure that that happens is through us. It takes us back to that first one. We need more of him. We are the problem. We can't be the solution. It's got to come from him, but he tells us it comes from him through us. God wants to change the world through you and me. We're his plan A and there's not a plan B. There is no world change without will change. Now you can insert your name, and we can let that scare us, or we can let that light a fire under us, right? We, we can we can get up and do something about it. I mean, I'm not saying don't pray for the people in Charlottesville or the famine in you know East Africa right now, or fill in the blank, but write a check too. You know, it's something. He wants to do it through us. And the problem with American Christianity today is that most of the church falls into one of two camps. If we're honest, there's A, the mostly evangelical Christians who reduce God's kingdom to this internal reign in our hearts and over-spiritualize everything, of whom James would say, if someone's hungry, um, it's great to pray for them and they might need Jesus too, but it doesn't hurt to give them some food. And for you to just over-spiritualize it and say, pray it off, is not kingdom of God stuff. And then there's the second category, the typically more liberal mainline Christians who reduce the kingdom to making earth look superficially more like heaven, but a few quick questions reveals that they're really just operating under another form of works-based righteousness, and they've completely forgotten in whose name and in whose power they are sent out to serve in the first place. Jesus calls us to a third way this morning. He calls us to pray your kingdom and to open our hearts to him even as we open our hands to our neighbors. The two, faith without works is dead, two sides of the same coin. Number three, finally, and thirdly, to pray your kingdom come is to pray that Jesus' return to us would be hastened. It's to pray for his return to us, to appreciate that this earth, being gradually transformed one sanctified, saved soul at a time, one soup kitchen visit at a time, one check to, you know, Samaritan's Purse at a time. That is a beautiful thing, but we've also got to recognize that the end of our story is so much better than that. Jesus offers us so much more hope than that, some gradual, you know, when does it ever end, the point of diminishing returns, kind of. That's not our story. To pray your kingdom comes to know that we have a king. It's to know that he's coming back for his bride. And it's to pray with so many saints who have gone before us. The earliest prayer that we have of the church in the New Testament. Maranatha. Our Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray, come indeed, Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we beg you This morning, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Father, our world needs so much more of you. We look around, we open our news app. We don't even have to. We roll out of bed, we walk in the kitchen, the living room. We're hit square in the face. With the brokenness, the mess, the intrusion of the kingdom of hell into our personal space and into our world. Father, we believe that we are a part of the problem, that you are the solution. That's why we ask you would you sing, send your kingdom? Father, would you transform our world? Make it look more like heaven. And would you do it in the lives of your people this morning? Father, we all have brokenness in our hearts. We all have remnants of the kingdom of hell, no matter how sanctified we are, that we need redeeming, that we need transforming. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's locked off closets of their heart from you, maybe compartmentalized and given you lordship over certain parts of of who they are, they're holding on to other things that they'd rather be the king of, Father, I pray that you would convict. Father, I pray that you would let us taste how good it is to surrender, submit to your Lordship, your kingship. And God, if there's anyone here this morning who hasn't taken that first step of faith, who maybe is hearing about this idea of you as king for the first time or really understanding it in a new way as as we open the scripture and look back over the course of human history, Father, I pray that you would whisper in your still, small voice into their heart right now. Show yourself to be the good Father that we know you are. Father, give us boldness and courage to surrender, to let you in, to be Lord and King. So worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray.